This is Talking Beats. I'm Daniel Lelchuk, and I welcome you. Go ahead and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also join us at Talking Beats Podcast on social media to keep the conversation going. On today's program, singer Linda Ronstadt, the musician whose career has spanned 50 years, has one of the most recognizable voices America produced. With its soaring high register and clarion beauty, it sounds almost operatic, and she made use of this voice everywhere from Mexican folk music to rock and roll, along the way winning an Emmy, 10 Grammy Awards, and selling more than 100 million records. The recipient of the National Medal of Arts from President Obama, she was forced to retire in 2011 due to progressive illness that robbed her of her ability to make music. But I didn't want to dwell on her condition. I just wanted to have a conversation about her early influences, her passions, and her ideas for the future. Some things might surprise you. I began by asking Linda Ronstadt, who even before the virus hit had to spend much of her time inside, how the pandemic has affected her life. Here's what she said. Well, it hasn't been a big change. I have to say my quality of life hasn't changed at all, except, you know, the, I, I like going to the movies and in the theater because it's on a big screen and I like it better, but it was a small sacrifice to make compared to what other people have. I feel very fortunate that I have been affected very little by this. When things open up a little bit, then I might see a change in my life because I think it's affected the world around us profoundly. What do you think is the thing you're going to look forward to most when when all of this when all of this calms down or, or even ends one day, what are you going to look forward to most? I mean, I, you're a big music lover. I know you go to the opera, the symphony sometimes, but what what would you like to do other than the obvious that that, that you can't do right now? I'd like to go to Chez Panisse and eat. <laughs> that's it's a it's good choice. To, I love that place. I like the Hay Street Grill too, but I I don't know if they're going to still be open. I'd be so sad if my favorite restaurant's closed. I'm a creature of habit. I tend to go to the same place over and over again. I always go to the Hay Street if I don't want to cross the bridge. If I, and if I go to Berkeley, I always go and eat at Chez Panisse. Uh, that is a great place. I remember I had a wonderful monkfish dish there a few years ago that I'll never forget. Monkfish, it was great at Chez Panisse. Well, I ate there the, the night before we clo- they, closed up, they closed up the city. So it's the th- first thing I want to do when we're opened up again. Did you know they were going to close or, or did it come as a surprise? It came as a surprise, but I, I knew something was going on. I, I had planned to go to Tucson. I was going to fly to Tucson, and the the hotel I was going to stay in closed. So I realized it was serious. It so was... I was going to take my take my mask and my bottle of Clorox and ride on the plane. Would have been foolish. Do you hate being asked about your your background? Because it is unusual. I I was wondering. I mean, I the voice you had is so powerful. You could almost say it was it was quasi operatic or, or was operatic. I mean, did did you even think about, God, maybe I want to sing Me, Me and La Boheme or something? Oh, I thought about it plenty, but I, I wasn't classically trained, and you really have to be classically trained to do that. It's really a, a way of growing your voice in a totally different shape. And I thought, I went and sang Boheme in New York, and I thought I could do it by force of willpower because I'd heard it so much, and I knew how, to, I knew, I knew how the melodies went, and I had the, had the high notes. But Mimi is a real meat and potatoes role. It's really... You gotta have a real firm center in your voice, and I, I, I always belted that, so I wasn't really right for that. But it was fun to learn it, and I, learning it was such an incredible experience. I've gotten to know that character and the characters in that show are so beautifully drawn, 
And since I experienced doing the sh- doing the opera, I feel like I know them better. So when I go and see it at the San Francisco Opera, I feel like I know all those people in the cast. So you actually did performances of Boheme as, as Mimi? Yeah, I sang it at the public theater. What was that like after having spent a, a career, a part of a career, in, in, in sort of a very different arena <laughs> in the music world? Suddenly you're singing a, a Puccini opera. Well, it was audacious, I think, and probably foolish on my part. But the the director wanted, well, first of all, they did it in English, and I had memorized it in Italian because I had to learn it off the record because I, I don't read music. So I memorized it in Italian, and I had to learn it in English. The opera singers sing twice a week. They don't do more than two week, two performances a week. We were doing eight shows a week. <laughs> so immediately my voice, I have a really strong voice, but it, it began to show wear and tear right away. Bohemian. So they double cast in the same way with the tenors. So they double cast it, so I didn't have to do it but three times a week, I think, or four times a week, which was still too much for me. How long did you do it for? As long as I was hired for, let's see. <laughs> I was, I think, the end of summer till spring or something like that. When I was between the ages of like nine and eleven years old, there was there was just two pieces that I listened to constantly because I'd been already playing cello since I was five, but. But at that time, I was I was really into opera, and it was all the time either Don Giovanni or La Boheme. I mean, constantly for years and years, or around the age of ten. Those are two good ones. How <laughs> did you play the cello at age five? Did you have a small cello? I had an eighth size cello, and I always thought that was the smallest one that's made. Apparently, there's a tenth size too. But when I was four and three quarters or five years old, I had an eighth size, and that's what I played on, and and. Uh, they got. I remember someone came over who was a, a violin player, full-grown guy, and and he held my little cello like a violin, and it didn't look that much bigger than a viola, you know. <laughs> what made you want to play the cello? I was really lucky because I was taken to the local science museum in, in Vermont, across the river from where I grew up in New Hampshire, and they were doing a demonstration for the little kids about how sound waves travel through the air, and they had. They had hired a cellist to be there and pull the bow across the string. And the cellist said, see all you little kids out there, when I pull the bow across the string, you can see the string move and you can hear the sound. And then I, I was two and a half and I said, oh my God, I got to play the cello. Oh, that's great. <laughs> no one in my family was a professional musician, but my mom was an amateur violinist and pianist. My dad is a musical lover. So so they always had you know great recordings, Heifetz and Rubenstein and... Uh, Rostropovich, Jacqueline Dupre, all these just the great players I heard from a young age. Yeah, it's really important for children to be exposed to that. The, the San Francisco Symphony has a really good program where they send people into the schools. If you're sitting in a classroom and somebody comes in and plays uh, some beautiful music on an instrument, it can send you to paradise, you know, and you could want to do that. If you never hear it, you're not going to know it exists. But as far as one kid, it's worth it. Say, I, I agree, even if one kid goes out of the concert and says, I, I have to be a musician, Mom and Dad, I have no choice, then it's worth it, right? It's worth it. And, you know, there's so little popular support for, I mean, in pop culture support for classical music. And it's not something you can do lightly. You have to, I mean, as I learned trying to sing an opera, something you have to spend years training to a very exquisite degree to be able to have that level of, uh, what do you call it, virtuosity play. The only other thing that requires that much ability is jazz. <laughs> when you when you were growing up, I know that you had a lot of talent that was evident in your voice when you were a kid, but who did you like to listen to when you were a kid? And you'd be like, oh man, if I could only sound like her, 
like him one day. Who who were those people, and did they follow you through your whole life? Oh, yeah. My brother was a boy soprano, and I wanted to sing like him in the worst way because the boy soprano is the most pure sound. And my grandmother was an opera fan, and my great aunts were too, and my grandfather. And I'd go over to their house, and they'd be playing it. They'd be playing arias from Bohem or La Traviata or something. That, and I learned all those melodies. And then later on, my grandmother would listen to the broadcast from the Met on the radio on Saturdays. And I used to go over and sit with her and listen. So I loved opera. And I had opera records, and I tried to copy it. We had Carmen, and we had, we had Bohem, and I can't remember what else we had. But I learned all those melodies. They were just part of my childhood growing up. My mom loved Gilbert and Sullivan, and she had a collection of Gilbert and Sullivan books. Uh, she had a big book with a collection of Gilbert and Sullivan songs on the piano. And my sister got cast in HMS Pinafore. She got the part of Buttercup. And I learned the part of the soprano, which was, I uh, can't remember the character's name right now, but I learned all the songs. And I don't know how I learned them. I don't read music. I learned them off the paper somehow. I just heard them when she was in rehearsal. And then my dad brought home a lot of Mexican music from because he used to go to Mexico all the time. Was so Mexican, and I learned from the singing of Lola Beltran, who's a who's a belter, and that that influenced my singing the most. Your your father played the piano as well. He played the piano and sang. My mom played the piano and sang, not very well, but enough to get the job done. You know, <laughs> everybody in my family plays and sings. They don't. They're not professional level. Some some of them are. Some of them are really good, but they, everybody can play and sing in harmony. When you were a little kid singing and everybody around you was singing and playing the piano and, and it was sort of normal that, okay, little Linda now is going to sing and play the piano too. Did, did you think they, your, your, your parents went to bed at night saying, you know, she's really, really, really talented. This is different than what we usually hear. <laughs> no, nobody, nobody performed. Everybody just sang along. You know, everybody could sing a harmony. You put on a harmony if you knew you'd sing whatever words you knew. A lot of the songs were in Spanish, and I didn't know the words. I just sort of knew the phonetic sounds. I sort of do that. But um, everybody did it. It was just taken for granted that you could sing. The cousins and everybody could. Nobody had to be really good. Just had to be able to be pretty much in tune and know how the song felt. How did you get away with not reading music the whole time? I mean, did, did was there ever a point where, where someone said or you said, oh, I guess I have to learn to read music, or, or was it never even an, an issue? I learned really fast. I'd listen to the person next to me who knew how to read. My best friend, Stevie Wynn, in high school, was a good reader. She was a really good sight reader. So I'd sit next to her, and she was a soprano, too. And I'd listen to her, and I'd sing it. I'd just mimic her, and I'd learn it real fast. The stuff I learned in high school, I'm, I really remembered. I'm a big fan of choral singing. I think it's a real important part of training. I think everybody should sing in parts and sing in choirs, even if they're terrible. There should be a terrible person's choir, and they should sing loud and just have a great time because music is really... It doesn't have to be perfect to be good. Don't you think it would do a lot of good if people who weren't going into music professionally knew that they weren't doing it professionally? That wasn't their goal. So, so they could assemble that terrible singer's choir you just mentioned and sing out with, with passion. I mean, I remember when I was in high school and I was beginning to study with one of the lead cellists in the Boston Symphony. I was driving down from New Hampshire to Boston every weekend. He, he said to me, if you're going to blow it, blow it gloriously. I do it twice. Yeah. <laughs> I do it full-throatedly. I'm a great believer that everybody should play their own music. You don't have to do it in front of other people. You don't have to perform it. But there's music for being with trusted friends that understand that whether you can sing or not. And there's music that you do in a solitary state, you know, all by yourself, just private music that you have. And then there's public music that you have to be pretty good to do. And you better be good or someone will get the hook and pull you off stage, but that's okay. <laughs> with a but hook we should have community music 
And if we did, kids, kids would be able to sing in tune. When you hear children sing happy birthday, nobody's in the same key. They sing a kind of grade. They don't sing the whole melody. They sort of move up and down, but not the shape of the melody. And nobody's singing in the, right, the same key. It's just really depressing. They're, they're hearing music. They're blasted with it all the time on television and movies and advertisement and stuff like that. But they're not doing it, so they're not learning how to, how to do it. Well, I think a lot of the adults around them probably sing very out of tune as well, so they're learning from their parents. <laughs> well, my son went to Waldorf School here for a while where they, they really teach you. They do a great job of teaching music. Waldorf School has a great music program, the best I've ever seen. He could always sing. He had music around the house, too. But I took him out of Waldorf School at some point when he was in fifth grade because he wasn't learning to read. He had a reading disability. And I sent him to a school for kids that have learning reading disabilities. And he came home. He said, I learned a Christmas carol. It was the 12 days of Christmas. And he said, I'll sing for you. On the first day of Christmas, my love came to me. I said, honey, that's not the melody. <laughs> when I went to school and heard the children performing it, that's what they were singing. Well, <laughs> I was so shocked I took them out. I, I I don't have kids, but I, I don't know if it would be a hard choice if you want your son to be able to carry a tune or read. I mean, they're both pretty important. <laughs> well, Chinese is a tonal language because they have to be real aware of tone and intonation from childhood. They're the best choral singers. The girls' choirs that come out of China are real in tune. And I think that you can understand subtle inflections in character and, and speech better if you can understand pitch. So it makes you kind of a dullard if you can't carry a tune. Speaking of carrying a tune, you, you mentioned earlier your brother who was a boy soprano, and I can understand exactly what you mean, the purity of the boy soprano, that there's nothing like it. So you heard his voice when you were growing up, and it was a wonderful voice. And then you, you enter the field, and we can talk about that at some point if you want to, but then you, you listen to music. Who, uh, who did you like to listen to? Who, who I mean, classical or, or non-classical, any genre, but what did you listen to that made you want to wake up in the morning and keep doing what you were doing? Well, I listened to a lot of Mexican music, traditional Mexican music, and I listened to rock and roll on the radio from a real early age, and I liked it, but it wasn't, it wasn't what I wanted to sing particularly. And as I got older, I started listening a lot to folk music. I listened to the Mighty Wind stuff like Peter, Paul, and Mary, and, but, which I still love, and Ian and Sylvia, and listened a lot to Joan Baez. I thought she was wonderful. She was had the closest thing to that boy soprano voice that I'd ever heard. So I was kind of a, more of a folky when I went to L.A., Folk music wasn't happening then. It was folk rock. And I heard the birds, and I thought, well, the birds can... I used to know the bass player. He was a bluegrass musician, Chris Hillman. And I thought, well, if Chris can go electric, we can, too. We were the, called the Stone Ponies. We were sort of a folky group. We were acoustic. We got amplifiers for our guitars. <laughs> it didn't make any difference. It didn't help. Just amplified a lot of strange noises. That was sort of what folk rock... Is the act of plugging in an amplifier uh, an act of making it into rock? Or <laughs> how does that... Well, then I, I, the attempt to make it folk rock, you know, to make it loud, it wasn't successful. But I learned a lot. We we did a nationwide tour, and cause I had a hit record, which didn't sound like the band at all, which was amplified and had drums. The band didn't stay together. But I listened to a lot of roots music. But I never, I never was a particularly a blues singer or R&B singer. I was always a ballad singer, and I was always more influenced by folky stuff or standards or songs like Jimmy Webb writes. I like complex songs with complex chord changes and big, big melodies. I don't like rhythm riffs. I mean, I like to hear them, but I can't sing them. Well, I guess that explains why you like Puccini. If you like big melodies, there's nothing bigger than a Puccini melody, right? Nothing, nothing bigger than a Puccini melody, except for maybe Verdi once in a while. I just remember the first time that I was starting to listen to other Puccini operas that 
weren't La Boheme because, that, uh, you know, I, at age 10, I, I refused to acknowledge any other opera existed by Puccini. All I wanted to hear was Boheme. And then yeah, right, me too. <laughs> and it's an easy trap to fall into because it kind of is the perfect opera in so many ways. You know, when I started to get into Tosca or Madame Butterfly, it was just like... Oh, God. <laughs> I died when I heard that aria, Un Bel Di. Uh, the first time I heard that, I was about 12, I think. And I just went, oh, God, I was just destroyed. Me I'd too. heard it before at my grandmother's house, but I got the record when I was 12. Who was singing on that record? The New Zealand woman. What's her name? Oh, Kiri Takanawa. Kiri Takanawa, yeah. Yeah, I remember that, that aria. So you, you know how there's certain pieces that I almost don't want to hear because I know it's going to destroy me, you know? And, and Und Beldi is one of them. I perform the opera a lot. Even being in the pit is, is brutal. It's just, it's too much. It's so hard. It's so beautiful, though. It's just elegant and beautiful. And that, that aria, the tenor aria in, in the Princess Turandot, I love that. That's something. Th- that is something, yeah. That's my favorite tenor aria. Really? Oh, I just love it. The ballad, you, you mentioned the word ballad before. I wanted to go back to that. I, I, explain what ballad means, because I, I, I think there's a lot of a connection to, to your Mexican background using the word ballad somehow. I'm thinking about sort of country, countryside music, sort of. Well, I really like ballads in the context of Frank Sinatra. You know, he's considered to be a ballad singer. It's a slow, sort of reflective, meditative songs, a little bit with a... Clear, clearly defined melody and a little bit more interesting chord. Har- like the chords are harmonized. A guy that can really do it from the second. I mean, all the Gershwins and Rogers and Hart, they were all masters at it and crafted the American song, the American popular song. But the second half of the century was <clears throat> more rhythm riffs and blues and rhythm and blues, which I love, but I, but I can't sing it. The guy that could really write it for the second half of the 20th century was Jimmy Webb and Randy Newman, too. Both of them were incredible incredible changes with interesting voicings and harmonies in their chords that are very seductive and very emotional, very visceral. Is Randy Newman one of your favorite male singers around? Oh, he's one of my favorite anythings. I just love him. I got to sing on his, he did a, he wrote a musical version of Faust. I don't know if you ever heard of it. No, I, no, not his version, no. He wrote a musical of Faust and it was on stage, but he cast it, but he made an album first and he cast it with the singers he wanted for each of the parts. I don't know if you know the story of Faust, but Faust sells his soul and f- so that he can have anything he wants to the devil. And the devil gives him anything. And he's got really terrible taste. He likes real sleazy stuff, but and he ruins people's lives. He has this girl, girlfriend named Gretchen, and he ruins her life. But I played Gretchen, and Bonnie Raitt played a good-time girl. Randy played the devil, and James Taylor played God, and Elton John played an archangel, and Don Henley played false, Faust. <laughs> Well, well, John had the prettiest song, but well, I had three beautiful songs to sing. Was was one of them Gr- Gretchen at the Spinning Wheel is a famous one from that? No, that was Gretchen at the Spinning Wheel. Gr- Faust? But that's in well, that's in the opera, that's in the Guno opera. But may- maybe it didn't make it into into Randy Newman's version. There are two, there are two Fausts, right? I saw one Faust that just killed me, where she kills her baby, she's just gone mad. I remember the shape of the melody, but I don't remember which composer did it. When was the Randy Newman Faust that you just talked about? Um, it was back in, let's see, it was before 2000. It was probably 1998 or something like that. Linda Ronstadt, I, I was wondering, you obviously someone who appreciates a lot of aspects of life that aren't directly connected to music. So what do you think that the relationship is for you? I, I guess you can only speak for yourself, but what's the relationship between all, all these other fields, architecture, art, literature, everything, and how do they play into your music? How do they influence how you want it to sound? 
Well, I, it's very unconscious. I tell singers all the time, or people that write, especially, to read every book you can, because every book you can, every book you read, every picture you see, every ballet you go to, every opera you hear, every magazine, good magazine, write, read the New Yorker, you know, or study the Harlem Renaissance. Everything that you learn colors the way your voice sounds, the way you might interpret a phrase. It all goes in there. There are people that do it and seem to come from a very barren cultural background, but. And they, they have so much talent, they can still do it. But it's richer if you've got those experiences. It enriches it. And, you know, my house, somebody was always playing music. Somebody was always, my dad was always building something. I was always very interested in architecture, my sister, too. My dad was, was an amateur watercolor painter. He was really good. Everybody in my family can draw and paint except for me. I'm trying to learn how to paint watercolors now. They were locked up. And it's so hard. But I love it. And people were always doing stuff. Is it a hard sell? You know, I, I, I know what you're saying, and I, I, I've always been told that, you know, that, you know, if you're a musician, you know, read and talk to people and, and look at paintings and everything, it all counts. But do you ever find that's a tough sell to people if, if they say, God, Linda, just tell me how to make a hit, how to make money? You know, you have to convince them that that richness has to be on the inside as well. Well, people came along pretty, pretty willingly on my twists and turns. Some things they didn't. So I made an album, I produced an album of glass music music on glass instruments which got lost which was too bad it was a really pretty record i only sang on two tracks but i mostly produced it you know when i did mexican music it was a pretty abrupt turn and we got a really good audience for that it was a different audience from my pop audience which was great it was and it was multi-generational grandparents would come with their with their children grandchildren it was really neat three generations would be there sitting together the trio with Dolly Parton and Emmylou Harris, whose whose idea was that? Was that something I, I know was commercially successful, but from a personal point of view, was that a big source of enjoyment, or was it just another one of the things that, that you did in your professional life? Oh, it was delicious. And it came to all three of us at the same time. We we got together at Emmy's house. I met Dolly independently of Emmy, and then Emmy had met her. And she came to Los Angeles. She called Emmy, and Emmy called me up and said, Dolly Parton's at my house. I said, I'll be here there in five minutes. <laughs> it was about 40 minutes away, but I think I got there in about 20 minutes. And, we, you know, we did what musicians always do. They When they get together, somebody gets out a guitar, you start singing. We started singing. We all knew the Carter family songs. So we started singing Bury Me Beneath the Willow. And we put in the harmonies. We we're all natural harmony singers. And it was just a sound that we just had shot. We just went, wow, we've got to make a record. Because that, that whole thing of making super groups, you know, when you put a bunch of stars together, like they, they used to do it in rock and roll. they get Ringo Starr and some big guitar player that wasn't the Beatles and they put together a super, super group, but they did not play with each other particularly. So they wouldn't have chosen each other to play with maybe. And it, it wasn't always very good, but I thought when Dolly and Emma and I sang, we had a, a unique sound and it was old timey music. It was not bluegrass. We've been really seeing bluegrass. What, what is old timey to you? I mean, old timey to me in, in the you know classical world means maybe you're talking about a, a Bach or a Handel. I, what is old timey to you? You know, the traditional songs that came out of the American South or the Southwest up until about World War One, World War Two, songs from the Dust Bowl, songs from the 20s. There were a lot of beautiful songs. They call it Americana now, I think. Can I ask you a, a, a weird question about music? Because you've alluded to this a couple of times, but I, I want your opinion right off the cuff. What, what happened to melody in music? What, where did it go? It's gone. It's really gone. I don't know. I would, I'd like to find it. It's really a shame. <laughs> Billie Eilish sings the melody every once in a while, and they have interesting harmonies and very beautiful textures. I think they would make really good records, she and her brother. The style now is hook and track. So you get a hooky, a hooky riff, and you build a track out of machines for it, and it can be very effective. 
but it's taken over and it's all you hear now. I mean, there's some really great singers like Sia really scream over one of those tracks. I don't know if you know Sia. I'll look for her because it's the same thing in contemporary classical music too. If you, You'd be loath to write a melody. I mean, if, if you wrote anything that someone could walk out of the concert hall whistling, you, you'd have you know committed a crime practically. <laughs> Well, she doesn't write the music, but she manages to pry melodic passages out of the out of the writers. She sang a song called Chandelier that she she wrote. You hear it on YouTube. She's got a great voice. It's got overtones in it. Well, Dolly Parton has those same overtones in her voice, and it makes her voice electric in a certain kind of way. She's got a really unusual voice. I love her singing. Do you think melody's going to come back? Is, is are people going to wake up one day and say, "God, I I I I just miss miss this uh, sweep of melody to put on a." Frank Sinatra, and they'll hear the melody or a Cole Porter or something and be like, what the hell happened? Uh, Jaden Souther made a record that was one of his last record he made was one of his best, I think. And he wrote, he made a conscious effort to sit down and write melodies like Rogers and Hart that had a verse to start with, you know, before you go into the refrain, written with those kind of chord structures. And it was really beautiful. The current market just doesn't resonate to it. But there are people still writing beautiful melodies. Jimmy Webb writes beautiful melodies. And Newman's last record had some of the most beautiful stuff I've ever heard him write. It's stuff that makes you cry, you know, if you look at the words and listen to the music. Because Randy can play something in the orchestra that is a chord that just strikes you. I always get a stomachache when I hear his music. And I always get a stomachache when I hear Jimmy's music. And the intro, before they even start singing, there's so much pathos in it that you just want to die. I like stuff like that. Do you listen to a lot of music day in and day out? I, I know you're you're obviously inside because of the virus and you're not exactly traveling the way you used to be anyway. So is music day in and day out something that, that you listen to? I would I would guess yes, based off of a, the past half for, an hour. For weeks, I, I don't listen to anything. This is terrible. Ordinarily, when I'd move into a house, I'd set up my stereo first with my speakers and my turntable and everything. I moved into this house, like there wasn't any place to put them and I didn't do it. And I'm still listening on my phone. Oh, my God. I'm also listening on YouTube. <laughs> I don't play records at all. I listen on YouTube because I can find everything there. I like hi-fi music. I like high-fidelity music. And we're, we're losing that. Like, all through the 20th century, from the beginning of the 20th century until the end, sound improved. Uh, we got hi-fi, high-fidelity records. We had really high, good quality vinyl. Then we went to CD that wasn't as good. Then people started going back to vinyl. They listened on good equipment, and it was good stereo. And records are made for that. The Beach Boys records and the Wall of Sounds, Wall of Sounds records that Phil Spector made, they were made for hi-fi sound. And now people are hearing MP3, which isn't all the information that's on the recording to start with, through crummy little speakers. And that's what I listen on. I, I want my hi-fi world back again. Well, I hope you can find a, a little corner or, or a, an extra table or something to set up the LP player and some speakers. At, at, at least you get it back. You have to have space and you have to have a good sounding room. I'm going to do it. I'm just been waiting for this to be over. I finally decided to make the commitment to do it after 15 years, <laughs> or 10 years. Well, <laughs> but, but better late than never. I was thinking, you know, just talking to you, how sort of curious and energetic and uh, alive you sound. Is, is it is it ever difficult? I mean, obviously, you don't sing anymore. I mean, is it... I can't. You can't. Where does your joie de vivre come from? Because I hear it in, in your voice. Well, I have nice friends. <laughs> I don't go out very much at all because it's hard to do it. Sometimes I can go out to the Valley of the Opera, but it's really, really difficult. I have to make a real commitment to do it. But I people come and visit me. I have two kids, one of whom I see regularly. But otherwise, it's just me and the cat. 
Well, maybe maybe the cat does it, but I, I have a feeling it's, it's something from you because I, I the, there's there's such a love of life that I hear in in talking to you, even even the way you respond to the Puccini to La Boheme, which I can totally relate with. Oh, I had the I had the Maria de Los Angeles version. It's a Swedish guy. Bure. You see, you see Bjorling. You see Bjorling, yeah. Is he Swedish or was he German? He's Swedish. What wonderful tenor, yeah. He did a great Rodolfo. He did a what? I love Maria de, de Los Angeles and with Mimi. Vic, yeah, with, with Victoria de Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah. It's really good. I loved it. I memorized that record. When young musicians come to you, do I assume they come to you a lot or, or knock on your door pre-virus or something, and, and they, they ask for it? It sounds like a cliche, but, but they, they, they want to know some advice and, and in, in terms of finding their musical sound and also what, what they want to say. There's a whole thing of what do you have to say other than getting to know the world and, and enriching your life, what do you tell them? Well, I tell them, if they're singers, I tell them to learn to play an instrument so they can accompany themselves. That makes a huge difference. That changes about 90% of your life then. You have to be able to show musicians what you want them to play. Otherwise, you're at the mercy of, and that's not fun. It's like surfing, surfing a wave you can't ride, you know. And I tell them to try to copy the stuff they love because it won't sound, it won't sound like the person they love. They'll sound like themselves. If you love something, try to learn what the elements are that, that form it, all of the details of it that you can. And then you just try to, like I always hear something I really loved, and I try to emulate the feeling it gave me. And I might play some other, completely other different kind of song, but I wanted to figure out a way that would make me feel the way that that Frank Sinatra record had sounded, you know. Completely. And the idea of, of knowing if, if you did something really well, knowing what you did to make it happen so it wasn't a fluke, so you can tr do it again the next night. Well, there's that. You have to be able to have a pretty high level of performance because in, 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 on stage you're only going to be doing about 80% of what you can really do because there's always some kind of, it's different every night. There's always something, the hall doesn't sound good, the sound, there's something wrong with the sound system. You don't like your bass player. It's always something. And you have to be able to do it at about 85, 90% all the time, even if you don't like your bass player. <laughs> Were you moved when you were singing yourself? I, I I've heard a lot of musicians, and I I can understand that also. And I, I I think I agree that if if you're not moved when you're performing, when you're doing it, then the likelihood of the people listening being moved is goes way down. Well, I'd always just play a movie in my head and then describe what I was seeing, so I wasn't very aware of the audience. I know that sounds callous, but I really wasn't. I was really focused on what I was doing. But were you moved? Telling the story. Were you moved when you were telling your story or, or singing a ballad? What, or was well, it a, just a job? It had my story in it, so I was felt had pretty strong feelings about it. You have to give everything you can to that note and tell the whole story. And then when you tell it, it won't be about you to the person that's listening to it. The person that's listening to it is going to be about their story. Because the idea is not to instruct, it's to evoke. You know, it, it reminds me of that wonderful quote from Mozart when he said that the the silences are just as important as the notes themselves, the time in between. That's for sure. That's everything. It's the basis of phrasing. What are you optimistic about, Linda Ronstadt? Very little right now. <laughs> what are you pessimistic about then? I think we're on the verge of civil war, and I'm serious. I think there are a lot of armed militias, right-wing white supremacists, armed militias, paramilitary people, and I think we're going to have domestic terrorism. I'm not afraid of of foreign terrorists. I'm afraid of American terrorists. Linda Ronstadt, I hope you're wrong. I hope I'm wrong too, but I don't think I am. Time will tell, and, and either way, I, I hope to speak to you again. You, your insights and your wisdom, you're something. Well, thank you. You've been listening to Talking Beats. 
with Daniel Alchuk. I hope you'll subscribe and leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. The producer of digital content is Brian West. The original theme music for this program is by Ronald Markham. The content coordinator is Nathaniel Mosse. Doug Christian is the executive producer. I'm Daniel Lelchuk. See you next time.